Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. Marcus Tullius Cicero, Second Oration Against Mark Antony, 44 BCE, Part 1 To what destiny of mine, O conscript fathers, shall I say that it is owing that none for the last twenty years has been an enemy to the Republic without at the same time declaring war against me? Nor is there any necessity for naming any particular person. You yourselves recollect instances in proof of my statement. They have all hitherto suffered severer punishments than I could have wished for them. But I marvel that you, O Antonius, do not fear the end of those men whose conduct you are imitating. And in others I was less surprised at this. None of those men of former times was a voluntary enemy to me. All of them were attacked by me for the sake of the Republic. But you, who have never been injured by me, not even by a word, in order to appear more audacious than Catiline, more frantic than Claudius, have of your own accord attacked me with abuse, and have considered that your alienation from me would be a recommendation of you to impious citizens. What am I to think? That I have been despised? I see nothing either in my life, or in my influence in the city, or in my exploits, or even in the moderate abilities with which I am endowed, which Antonius can despise. Did he think that it was easiest to disparage me in the Senate? A body which has borne its testimony in favour of many most illustrious citizens that they governed the Republic well, but in favour of me alone, of all men, that I preserved it. Or did he wish to contend with me in a rivalry of eloquence? This, indeed, is an act of generosity. For what could be a more fertile or richer subject for me than to have to speak in defence of myself and against Antonius? This, in fact, is the truth. He thought it impossible to prove to the satisfaction of those men who resembled himself that he was an enemy to his country if he was not also an enemy to me. And before I make him any reply on the other topics of his speech, I will say a few words respecting the friendship formerly subsisting between us, which he has accused me of violating. For that I consider a most serious charge. He has complained that I pleaded once against his interest. Was I not to plead against one with whom I was quite unconnected, in behalf of an intimate acquaintance, of a dear friend? Was I not to plead against interest acquired, not by hopes of virtue, but by the disgrace of youth? Was I not to plead against an injustice which that man procured to be done by the obsequiousness of a most iniquitous interposer of his veto, not by any law regulating the privileges of the praetor? But I imagine that this was mentioned by you, in order that you might recommend yourself to the citizens, if they all recollected that you were the son-in-law of a freedman, and that your children were the grandsons of Quintus Fabius, a freedman. But you had entirely devoted yourself to my principles, for this is what you said. You had been in the habit of coming to my house. In truth, if you had done so, you would more have consulted your own character and your reputation for chastity. But you did not do so, nor, if you had wished it, would Caius Curio have ever suffered you to do so. But I availed myself of your friendly assistance. Of what assistance? 
although the instance which you cite I have myself at all times openly admitted. I preferred confessing that I was under obligations to you to letting myself appear to any foolish person not sufficiently grateful. However, what was the kindness that you did me? Not killing me at Brundisium? Would you then have slain the man whom the conqueror himself, who conferred on you, as you used to boast, the chief rank among all his robbers, had desired to be safe and had enjoined to go to Italy? Grant that you could have slain him. Is not this, O conscript fathers, such a kindness as is done by banditti, who are contented with being able to boast that they have granted their lives to all those men whose lives they have not taken? And if that were really a kindness, then those who slew that man by whom they themselves had been saved, and whom you yourself are in the habit of styling most illustrious men, would never have acquired such immortal glory. But what sort of kindness is it to have abstained from committing nefarious wickedness? It is an ease in which it ought not to appear so delightful to me not to have been killed by you, as miserable that it should have been in your power to do such a thing with impunity. However, grant that it was a kindness, since no greater kindness could be received from a robber. Still, in what point can you call me ungrateful? Ought I not to complain of the ruin of the Republic, lest I should appear ungrateful toward you? But he has also read letters which he said that I had sent to him, like a man devoid of humanity and ignorant of the common usages of life. For whoever, who was even but slightly acquainted with the habits of polite men, produced in an assembly and openly read letters which had been sent to him by a friend, just because some quarrel had arisen between them. Is not this destroying all companionship in life, destroying the means by which absent friends converse together? How many jests are frequently put in letters, which, if they were produced in public, would appear stupid? How many serious opinions, which, for all that, ought not to be published? Let this be a proof of your utter ignorance of courtesy. Now mark also his incredible folly. What have you to oppose to me, O oh, you eloquent man, as you seem at least to Mustela Tamissus and to Tiro Numisius? And while these men are standing at this very time in the sight of the Senate with drawn swords, I too will think you an eloquent man if you will show how you would defend them if they were charged with being assassins. However, what answer would you make if I were to deny that I ever sent those letters to you? By what evidence could you convict me? By my handwriting? Of handwriting indeed you have a lucrative knowledge. How can you prove it in that manner? For the letters are written by an amanuensis. By this time I envy your teacher, who for all that payment which I shall mention presently, has taught you to know nothing. You have said that Publius Claudius was slain by my contrivance. What would men have thought if he had been slain at the time when you pursued him in the forum with a drawn sword in the sight of all the Roman people? And when you would have settled his business if he had not thrown himself up the stairs of a bookseller's shop and shutting them against you, checked your attack by that means. And I confess that at that time I favoured you, but even you yourself do not say that I had advised your attempt. But as for Milo, it was not possible even for me to favour his action, for he had finished the business before anyone could suspect that he was going to do it. Oh, but I advised it. 
I suppose Milo was a man of such a disposition that he was not able to do a service to the Republic if he had not someone to advise him to do it. But I rejoiced at it. Well, suppose I did. Was I to be the only sorrowful person in the city when everyone else was in such delight? Although that inquiry into the death of Publius Claudius was not instituted with any great wisdom. For what was the reason for having a new law to inquire into the conduct of the man who had slain him when there was a form of inquiry already established by the laws? However, an inquiry was instituted. And have you now been found so many years afterwards to say a thing which, at the time that the affair was under discussion, no one ventured to say against me? But as to the assertion that you have dared to make, and that at great length too, that it was by my means that Pompeius was alienated from his friendship with Caesar, and that on that account it was my fault that the civil war was originated. In that you have not erred so much in the main facts as, and that is of the greatest importance, in the times. When Marcus Bibulus, a most illustrious citizen, was consul, I omitted nothing which I could possibly do or attempt to draw off Pompeius from his union with Caesar. In which, however, Caesar was more fortunate than I, for he himself drew off Pompeius from his intimacy with me. But afterward, when Pompeius joined Caesar with all his heart, what could have been my object in attempting to separate them then? It would have been the part of a fool to hope to do so, and of an impudent man to advise it. However, two occasions did arise on which I gave Pompeius advice against Caesar. You are at liberty to find fault with my conduct on these occasions if you can. One was when I advised him not to continue Caesar's government for five years more. The other when I advised him not to permit him to be considered as a candidate for the consulship when he was absent. And if I had been able to prevail on him in either of these particulars, we should never have fallen into our present miseries. Moreover, I also, when Pompeius had now devoted to the service of Caesar all his own power and all the power of the Roman people, and had begun when it was too late to perceive all the things which I had foreseen long before, and when I saw that a nefarious war was about to be waged against our country, I never ceased to be the adviser of peace and concord and some arrangement. And that language of mine was well known to many people. I wish, O Gnaeus Pompeius, that you had either never joined in a confederacy with Caius Caesar, or else that you had never broken it off. The one conduct would have become your dignity, and the other would have been suited to your prudence. This, O Marcus Antonius, was at all times my advice both respecting Pompeius and concerning the Republic, and if it had prevailed, the Republic would still be standing, and you would have perished through your own crimes and indigence and infamy. But these are all old stories now. This charge, however, is quite a modern one, that Caesar was slain by my contrivance. I am afraid, O conscript fathers, lest I should appear to you to have brought up a sham accuser against myself, which is a most disgraceful thing to do. A man not only to distinguish me by the praises which are my due, but to load me also with those which do not belong to me. For who ever heard my name mentioned as an accomplice in that most glorious action? And whose name has been concealed who was in the number of that gallant band? Concealed, do I say? 
whose name was there which was not at once made public? I should sooner say that some men had boasted in order to appear to have been concerned in that conspiracy, though they had in reality known nothing of it, than that any one who had been an accomplice in it could have wished to be concealed. Moreover, how likely is it that among such a number of men, some obscure, some young men who had not the wit to conceal anyone, my name could possibly have escaped notice? Indeed, if leaders were wanted for the purpose of delivering the country, what need was there of my instigating the Bruti, one of whom saw every day in his house the image of Lucius Brutus, and the other saw also the image of Ahala? Were these the men to seek counsel from the ancestors of others rather than from their own, and out of doors rather than at home? What? Caius Cassius, a man of that family which could not endure, I will not say the domination, but even the power of any individual. He, I suppose, was in need of me to instigate him? A man who, even without the assistance of these other most illustrious men, would have accomplished this same deed in Cilicia, at the mouth of the river Sidnus, if Caesar had brought his ships to that bank of the river which he had intended, and not to the opposite one. Was Cnaeus Domitius spurred on to seek to recover his dignity, not by the death of his father, a most illustrious man, nor by the death of his uncle, nor by the deprivation of his own dignity, but by my advice and authority? Did I persuade Caius Trebonius, a man whom I should not have ventured even to advise? On which account the Republic owes him even a larger debt of gratitude, because he preferred the liberty of the Roman people to the friendship of one man, and because he preferred overthrowing arbitrary power to sharing it. Was I the instigator whom Lucius Tilius Simba followed? A man whom I admired for having performed that action, rather than ever expected that he would perform it. And I admired him on this account, that he was unmindful of the personal kindnesses which he had received, but mindful of his country. What shall I say of the two Sevilli? Shall I call them Cascas or Ahalas? And do you think that those men were instigated by my authority, rather than by their affection for the Republic? It would take a long time to go through all the rest and it is a glorious thing for the Republic that they were so numerous and a most honourable thing also for themselves. But recollect, I pray you, how that clever man convicted me of being an accomplice in the business. When Caesar was slain, says he, Marcus Brutus immediately lifted up on high his bloody dagger and called on Cicero by name and congratulated him on liberty being recovered. Why on me above all men? because I knew of it beforehand? Consider rather whether this was not his reason for calling on me, that, when he had performed an action very like those which I myself had done, he called me above all men to witness that he had been an imitator of my exploits. But you, O oh stupidest of all men, do not perceive that if it is a crime to have wished that Caesar should be slain, which you accuse me of having wished, it is a crime also to have rejoiced at his death? For what is the difference between a man who has advised an action and one who has approved of it? Or what does it signify whether I wished it to be done or rejoiced that it has been done? Is there anyone then, except you yourself and those men who wished him to become a king, who was unwilling that that deed should be done or who disapproved of it after it was done? All men, therefore, are guilty as far as this goes. 
In truth, all good men, as far as it depended on them, bore a part in the slaying of Caesar. Some did not know how to contrive it, some had not courage for it, some had no opportunity. Everyone had the inclination. Shall we then examine your conduct from the time when you were a boy? I think so. Let us begin at the beginning. Do you recollect that, while you were still clad in the pretexta, you became a bankrupt? That was the fault of your father, you will say. I admit that. In truth, such a defence is full of filial affection. But it is peculiarly suited to your own audacity that you sat among the fourteen rows of the knights, though by the Rosian law there was a place appointed for bankrupts, even if any one had become such by the fault of fortune and not by his own. You assumed the manly gown, which you soon made a womanly one. At first a public prostitute, with a regular price for your wickedness, and that not a low one. But very soon Gurio stepped in, who carried you off from your public trade, and, as if he had bestowed a matron's robe upon you, settled you in a steady and durable wedlock. No boy bought for the gratification of passion was ever so wholly in the power of his master as you were in Gurio's. How often had his father turned you out of his house? How often has he placed guards to prevent you from entering? While you, with night for your accomplice, lust for your encourager, and wages for your compeller, were let down through the roof, that house could no longer endure your wickedness. Do you not know that I am speaking of matters with which I am thoroughly acquainted? Remember that time when Gurio, the father, lay weeping in his bed, his son throwing himself at my feet with tears recommended to me you. He entreated me to defend you against his own father if he demanded six millions of sesterces of you. For that he had been bail for you to that amount. And he himself, burning with love, declared positively that because he was unable to bear the misery of being separated from you, he should go into banishment. And at that time, what misery of that most flourishing family did I allay, or rather did I remove? I persuaded the father to pay the son's debts, to release the young man, endowed as he was with great promise of courage and ability by the sacrifice of part of his family estate, and to use his privileges and authority as a father to prohibit him not only from all intimacy with, but from every opportunity of meeting you. When you recollected that all this was done by me, would you have dared to provoke me by abuse if you had not been trusting to those swords which we behold? But let us say no more of your profligacy and debauchery. There are things which it is not possible for me to mention with honour. But you are all the more free for that, inasmuch as you have not scrupled to be an actor in scenes which a modest enemy cannot bring himself to mention. Mark now, O conscript fathers, the rest of his life, which I will touch upon rapidly. For my inclination hastens to arrive at those things which he did in the time of the civil war, amid the great miseries of the Republic, and at those things which he does every day. And I beg of you, though they are far better known to you than they are to me, still to listen attentively, as you are doing, to my relation of them. For in such cases as this, it is not the mere knowledge of such actions that ought to excite the mind, but the recollection of them also. And we must at once go into the middle of them, lest otherwise we should be too long in coming to the end. He was very intimate with Claudius at the time of his tribuneship. 
He who now enumerates the kindnesses which he did me. He was the firebrand to handle all conflagrations, and even in his house he attempted something. He himself well knows what I allude to. From thence he made a journey to Alexandria, in defiance of the authority of the Senate, and against the interests of the Republic, and in spite of religious obstacles. But he had Gabinus for his leader, with whom whatever he did was sure to be right. What were the circumstances of his return from thence? What sort of return was it? He went from Egypt to the farthest extremity of Gaul before he returned home. And what was his home? For at that time every man had possession of his own house, and you had no house anywhere, O Antonius. House, do you say? What place was there in the whole world where you could set your foot on anything that belonged to you, except Mienum, which you farmed with your partners as if it had been Cisapo? You came from Gaul to stand for the quaestorship. Dare to say that you went to your own father before you came to me. I had already received Caesar's letters, begging me to allow myself to accept of your excuses, and therefore I did not allow you even to mention thanks. After that I was treated with respect by you, and you received attentions from me in your canvas for the quaestorship. And it was at that time, indeed, that you endeavoured to slay Publius Claudius in the Forum with the approbation of the Roman people, and though you made the attempt of your own accord, and not at my instigation, still you clearly alleged that you did not think, unless you slew him, that you could possibly make amends to me for all the injuries which you had done me. And this makes me wonder why you should say that Milo did that deed at my instigation when I never once exhorted you to do it, who of your own accord attempted to do me the same service. Although, if you had persisted in it, I should have preferred allowing the action to be set down entirely to your own love of glory, rather than to my influence. It was you, you, I say, O Marcus Antonius, who gave Gaius Caesar, desirous as he already was to throw everything into confusion, the principal pretext for waging war against his country. For what other pretense did he allege? What cause did he give for his own most frantic resolution and action, except that the power of interposition by the veto had been disregarded, the privileges of the tribunes taken away, and Antonius's rights abridged by the Senate? I say nothing of how false, how trivial these pretenses were, especially when there could not possibly be any reasonable cause whatever to justify anyone in taking up arms against his country. But I have nothing to do with Caesar. You must unquestionably allow that the cause of that ruinous war existed in your person. Oh, miserable man, if you are aware, more miserable still if you are not aware, that this is recorded in writings, is handed down to men's recollection, that our very latest posterity in the most distant ages will never forget this fact, that the consuls were expelled from Italy, and with them Cnaeus Pompeius, who was the glory and light of the empire of the Roman people that all the men of consular rank whose health would allow them to share in that disaster and that flight, and the praetors and men of praetorian rank, and the tribunes of the people, and a great part of the senate, and all the flower of the youth of the city, and, in a word, the republic itself was driven out and expelled from its abode. 
as then there is in seeds the cause which produces trees and plants, so of this most lamentable war you were the seed. Do you, O conscript fathers, grieve that these armies of the Roman people have been slain? It is Antonius who slew them. Do you regret your most illustrious citizens? It is Antonius again who has deprived you of them. The authority of this order is overthrown. It is Antonius who has overthrown it. Everything, in short, which we have seen since that time, and what misfortune is there that we have not seen, we shall, if we argue rightly, attribute wholly to Antonius. As Helen was to the Trojans, so has that man been to this republic, the cause of war, the cause of mischief, the cause of ruin. The rest of his tribuneship was like the beginning. He did everything which the Senate had laboured to prevent as being impossible to be done consistently with the safety of the Republic. And see now how gratuitously wicked he was in accomplishing his wickedness. Then, in this same tribuneship, when Caesar, while on his way into Spain, had given him Italy to trample on, what journeys did he make in every direction? How did he visit the municipal towns? I know that I am only speaking of matters which have been discussed in everyone's conversation, and that the things which I am saying and am going to say are better known to everyone who was in Italy at that time than to me, who was not. Still, I mention the particulars of his conduct, although my speech cannot possibly come up to your own personal knowledge. When was such wickedness ever heard of as existing upon earth? Or such shamelessness, or such open infamy?